Hey there, I'm Mike. Some of you know me from the Twisted Cape. Some of you know me because my heart belongs to you, but my cock is community property. But regardless of how you know me, you know that I love comics, and that's what we talk about on this podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Mike's Big Stack. Oh, hell yeah, my thickies. Welcome to the show, everyone. Recording this week at the Federal Thickness Commission. Remember, next week, I'll be launching Mike's Thick Stack Books of the Week, a video series. I'll be dropping videos of the Marvel and DC Book of the Week on YouTube, and they'll typically be a three to five minute long video, unless there are lots of co-books of the week. Kind of like this week, just like last week. It's going to be straight fire. Next, make sure you follow us on Twitch and watch me play Marvel's Avengers a couple nights a week and soon some other superhero video games. The link to the Twitch channel is in our show notes. Last week, I announced a series on catch-up books starting next week, likely dropping on Wednesday. Great if you love the X-Men. Now, here come your city shout-outs for this week. Up first, that international love from Brussels is great. Thank you so much. Nothing bad happening in Philly when they're listening to our show. Thank you. Ashburn, Virginia, you're too hot. Hot damn. Oakland, California is showing up week after week and you make us happy. Yo-yo to the friends in Knoxville, Tennessee. Thanks for tuning in to those in Dallas, Texas, and welcome in to our new friends in Columbus. As always, we start by reading the thickness of my stack, so put your thing down, flip it, and then also reverse it while we check out Mike's Thickometer. Oh yeah, Mike's Thickometer. Thick like the pillows on my couch, this week clocks in at a 9 out of 10 on Mike's Thickometer. This level of thickness is just nasty, exactly how I like it. In case you're curious, the stack this week has no lean and is a pure 50-50 split. This week, we will begin with the DC books, starting first with Batman Superman Annual Number 1. I gave this a 3 out of 5. Here is why I like annuals. This story is a showdown between Batmite and Mr. Mixie Spitalik over who would win in a fight, Batman or Superman. They set up several situations throughout the course of the story where they would have to fight, but it's actually Batman and Superman as a little twist. They go back and forth, but the heroes constantly realize that something is wrong and there's no real reason for them to be fighting. Also, little bits and pieces of previous stories creep into their memories. They eventually realize who is controlling them and break free of their control. Just a weird, wonderful story, and I wish we got more like it. Nothing spectacular about it. It's just a love letter to these characters. The art in this is okay, but it's nothing really to write home about. I'm just happy that it was a form of escapism at its finest. Next on the docket, we have... Batman The Joker Warzone. I gave this a 2 out of 5. I almost wish I hadn't bought this because it really didn't do much to enhance Joker War. This is a collection of five short stories, three of which were fairly self-contained. The other two are teases for stuff coming in 2021, and those are probably the most impactful stories to me, and those are the ones I'm really going to cover the most. The first is a story between Joker and Bane. Joker is just really pissed at Bane about wasting Alfred's death on Robin and not Batman as Batman is locked up in Arkham and vows to make him pay for it. Uh, It's really dark and I would recommend reading it if you get the opportunity. 
The second important story to me centers on Poison Ivy and her evolution, I guess we should say, into becoming Queen Ivy. She seems like she's planning something really big. I'm excited for that because if you listen to the show, you know I love a good Poison Ivy story. There are other stories that focus on the Fox family like Lucius and Luke and how Lucius is recovering from being infected by the Joker serum by Punchline. There's a story about Orphan and Spoiler. And finally, Clown Killer. That last one is sort of interesting, I guess, because it reveals his identity, but essentially means nothing. The art is kind of all over the place in this book. The writing is kind of all over the place. So it's hard for me to really try and explain that without making this segment super, super long. And I don't want to do that. So we're just going to go ahead and move on to Batman Three Jokers, which I give a four out of five. And this is a co-DC book of the week. For all the build-up and excitement around this story, I didn't expect it to be this good. Admittedly, at the core of this story so far seems to be Jason, Babs, and how Bruce has failed them, in addition to dealing with their specific trauma. The issue begins with the comedian Joker basically having a mental break, and the criminal Joker bringing him back to Earth, expressing his displeasure with the third, the clown Joker, being killed off. Batgirl goes to a scene where Batman is and gives him the news that the clown Joker has been killed by Jason. And Bruce takes so much of the responsibility on for being a shitty mentor, which is accurate. <laughs> I mean, if we're being serious, uh, Batman at times is quite the shitty, shitty mentor. Batman tracks fingerprints to Arkham from a murder weapon. And it seems that the fingerprints belong to Joe Chill, who's in Arkham, currently dying of cancer. There's a really like poignant scene in there with Batman going to confront his his parents' killer, and he who is not there. So it's it's almost moot, but it's it's really it's breaking for Batman. Meanwhile, Jason has been tracking his own leads, and he finds a pool of naked people that are attempted to be made into a new joker jason is taken by the two remaining jokers stripped naked and beaten with a crowbar they explain that they want to make jason a new joker because of how much he actually hates batman batman and batgirl arrive on the scene later and find jason unconscious and when he wakes he basically has a meltdown and gives batman what for which is again earned they move him somewhere safe, a.k.a. Babs' apartment, and Babs and Bruce have an argument, and Babs says that Bruce needs to really stay there for Jason stop chasing leads. Jason wakes up and finds Babs' self-help books, her wheelchair, and a calendar of physical therapy, showing how much she's actually gone through. And as they start to talk out some of these feelings after Jason gets out of the shower, butt-ass naked, they don't show anything in this book. It's not Batman damned people. Come on. It leads to an eventual kiss between Batgirl and Red Hood. And it's seemingly a fleeting moment. The story ends with Batman finding a clue in Alaska and Joker getting Joe Chill to confess to why he killed the Waynes. To me, making the story about the relationship between Joker and these two victims and the trauma that they have and the role Batman played in all of this is the best way to tell the story. I really like that. And the art in this book is visceral and disturbing at times, which is great. It's a perfect fit for the story. 
Up next, we have Dark Knight's Death Metal Multiverse's End number one. I gave this a three and a half out of five. This fun little story has a lot going on on multiple Earths and has a lot of Green Lantern action as well as a feature for Captain Carrot. So if you like any of those characters, this book is for you. The bulk of this book is carried by Jon Stewart and Owlman as well as Guy Gardner and Captain Carrot. John has been captured by Owlman on Earth-3 and is set to keep him prisoner instead of letting him go and do hero stuff because he's mad uh, at Perpetua, essentially, for choosing the Batman who laughs instead of him because, in his mind, he's the truest dark reflection of Batman. John takes some time to explain how this whole thing with Perpetua happened. Meanwhile... Guy and Captain Carrot are rescuing people from Earth-X, so you know that means motherfuckers are fighting Nazis, and, and they do so so that no one gets hurt and, you know, get to beat up some Nazis while they're at it, so bonus. Captain Carrot recounts losing the zoo crew and how painful it has been for him, and that's actually quite gut-wrenching. Batmite shows up at Perpetua's order with a rainbow Batman core to attack the Green Lanterns, which is silly as it sounds. On Earth-3, John reveals that Owlman isn't even the original Owlman, but what Owlman winds up taking out of that is that as long as a multiverse exists, Owlman exists because he's the dark reflection of Batman. So he opts to free John, kill his former team, and as they escape, they save who they can. Uh, Owlman takes out Batmite and his rainbow Batman. John and the other lanterns hurl through space headed home. I like that this story jumped around from Earth to Earth, but from a flow perspective, it didn't really work and made the book feel longer than it actually is. We could have done with far less recap because no one is just buying this book and nothing else. We know the story. Just give us more next time, I beg of you. I was kind of iffy on the art uh, as well. At times, it's awesome. At other times, I was just not a fan. We'll see how the story here continues in Rise of the New Gods number one, which is kind of exciting. Up next, we have Justice League Annual number two. I gave this a two and a half out of five. This was an annual, but it did get as weird as I had hoped, but it did make a Superman story wrap up a little better, provide a little more closure. The premise is that Batman finds a body in the Hall of Justice and summons the rest of the League. They get there and essentially end up fighting the Hall, which takes very specific measures to neutralize the powers of the League's enemies that have identical powers to them. So, Barry would thawn, and there's a neutralization there. With Superman, it's Zod, and there's a neutralization there. It's tons of stuff like that. There's detective work from Batman, and a lot of creative problem-solving from the rest of the League, specifically Flash and Green Lantern, throughout the issue. It turns out the Hall's been taken over by the Eradicator, who's being held in stasis and has connected to their network. Turns out, though, he has launched the Hall into space to activate the self-destruct protocol. They stop Eradicator just in time and then land the Hall. Batman seals Eradicator away in storage as Wonder Woman gives this speech about working as a team. I like this story, but... I feel like we just had a kumbaya-type story from this series. I just want something cool when, when it comes to an annual, and I feel DC has sadly been dropping the ball a little bit here. It's a decent-looking story, but I'm not writing home about the art over here. Using the Eradicator as a direct tie to the Superman series is kind of cool and is the beauty of using an entire comic book world. 
Up next, we have Wonder Woman 1984, number one. I gave this a two out of five. There are two stories in this issue, surprisingly. The first story follows Diana, who's a museum curator, giving a tour to a trio of teenagers. The lights go out, and a heist breaks out for a diamond called the Noble Diamond. Diana goes for help, and Wonder Woman mysteriously shows up. She effectively subdues many of the aggressors, while the teenagers act bravely to take care of themselves. Wonder Woman saves the kids when it gets too hot for them in combat, and then Diana mysteriously shows up after the kids have given the Noble Diamond back to the museum, and she invites them back at the end of that story. The second story is Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor hunting a kid named Jack Towers, who's responsible for someone lifting the lasso of truth off of Wonder Woman. He claims he took it to get back at the adults who essentially neglected their children, like his dad and the parents of all the children that he's enlisted. Wonder Woman tells him to return the money that he's earned or stolen, help his father, and build something with these kids that he has and his dad to make it completely theirs. He agrees, and then Diana and Steve walk off. Overall, I think I was really just disappointed here. The story in the first part of the book was just fine, I guess, but the art was substandard. The story in the second part of the book was not great, but the art was cool and had a fun vibe to it. I guess I expected more out of it. Final word here, I did buy this almost exclusively for the cover. The girl who did the design was essentially bullied online and DC picked it up for the cover. And I promised to buy it right away because I wanted to support her for one, how cool it looks, and two, fuck bullying. Those guys can, uh, you know, internet trolls are just douches anyway. So anyway, Wonder Woman number 763, final book here, four out of five, Co's DC Book of the Week. So this story wraps up the whole Liar Liar thing. This story gives us a little more background on Liar Liar as well. She's definitely Max Lord's daughter, as we discover early on. The standoff from the end of last issue is quickly nullified, but then we really get into Liar Liar's backstory. We find out that her mom has told her that her father has died from cancer, and then she finds her own birth certificate. In a dark turn, she uses her powers to force her mom to drive into oncoming traffic, killing her, basically. Max helped Diana by taking her ability to hear Liar Liar from her, which is how she uses her powers, but Diana recognizes the pain that she's in. Emma gets the drop on Max and is about to finish him off, not before showing him Wonder Woman snapping his neck back from, God, I want to say, like, Infinite Crisis? Some, uh, somebody check me on that. Uh, I'll, I'll never look it up. Don't worry about it. But Diana intervenes and Max takes her powers away. They put Emma away and Max is out on parole, set to team up with Diana for the foreseeable future. It seems like Emma still has her powers and somehow the bunny is involved. I don't, I don't like this like this bunny. I don't, I don't understand this bunny. And I feel that Max will definitely come back into play somehow as a villain down the line. I do like the dark turns this story had, as well as some of the soapy family drama. Also, the art is pretty nice in this book. There's another gorgeous splash page, almost right in the middle of the story, with Diana and a giant, terrifying, mutated-looking bunny. Cooler than it sounds, trust me. I really liked how this turned out, especially all the little teases towards future stuff. Okay, that's it for the DC books. Hang in there with me, and we will hit the Marvel books right after this. 
Hey guys, this is Jesse at the Twisted Cape. We just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you amazing listeners of both the Twistcast and Mike's Thick Stack for your support over all these years. Just a friendly reminder to subscribe to our shows on your favorite podcasting platform because we're everywhere. Also, don't forget to like and rate the Twistcast wherever you listen. We do love our five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Don't forget to tell us what you like about the show in your review as well. And now, back to the show. Oh yeah, we're back. We're back. Okay, we're going to start these Marvel books now. I'm dumbing uh, and complete dumbass. Starting with Avengers number 36. I gave this a 4 out of 5 co-Marvel book of the week. Admittedly, I was concerned about how this issue started, but it rallied into an interesting, potentially game-changing issue. It jumps back and forth between several plot threads and time periods, which is why I was a little concerned, but upon a second read... It made this book so much better. A centerpiece of the issue is the fight between Moon Knight and Black Panther. It turns out Khonshu fought Black Panther chronologically earlier, and Mooney tagged in, but Khonshu started using Doctor Strange's magic to make Mark see T'Challa as Mephisto. That's a little confusing. I understand. This fight is incredible with amazing moves being used throughout, but the fight seems a little one-sided towards Black Panther. During the fight... Mark admits that he knows it's T'Challa and needs Black Panther to finish the fight and make him bleed more. In some of the interludes, Moon Knight is questioning his dedication to Khonshu while driving on the moon in his hell ghost rider car that he's stolen from Robbie Reyes when he comes across the Unseen, who is Nick Fury, for all of those who don't know, who tells him to pray for salvation to the one who eats stars and moons. Meanwhile, Hulk, She-Hulk, Captain America, and Blade, as well as Robbie Reyes, speed towards the pyramid where Black Panther is being held. Out in space, Khonshu is running down Iron Man and Captain Marvel, who have the Starbrand baby and is about to add her power to his own. Moon Knight, back in, in the fight with Black Panther, punches himself in the face, making himself bleed just enough so that the Phoenix Force shows up and possesses him at the end of the issue. Despite a ton of cool sequences, I'm not a fan of the art here. I think Moon Knight is a character with a badass design, but it's really not my cup of tea in this issue until the very end where we get a Phoenix-infused costume. However, the prospect of a Phoenix Mooney makes me salivate. I'm concerned about the true threat of Mephisto here, and I feel like it's being a bit downplayed. There's an absolute reason to amass this much power. I'm also worried about Mark after all this is said and done. Just remember, things don't generally end well for people who host the Phoenix Force. Moving on to Fantastic Four, number 24, I gave this a 3 out of 5. This issue directly addresses a joke that's been running for a little while and gives a bonus Thor story at the end. This is a self-contained issue focusing on the passing joke that Iceman replaced Human Torch early on when the Human Torch left the group and is a sore point for Johnny. Turns out Bobby and Johnny were going through some growing pains early in their careers that pulled them from their respective teams. Whether it was false bravado or an inflated ego, they both end up leaving their teams. And while Johnny sought to use his fame for girls, Bobby just really looked to make himself useful. The issue ends with the two element-based heroes treating each other like family. This was a nice heartwarming tale with some cool retro-style art and designs. Sprinkled around the main story are just mini family squabbles that enhance the, the family vibe 
of the Fantastic Four. Franklin getting an earring without his parents' permission. Ben and Alicia now dealing with being parents for the first time. Sky and Johnny working on figuring out who they are to each other. Good story. The Thor story at the end is a story backup for the Marvel Fortnite tie-in, explaining the how and why. I don't play Fortnite, full disclosure, so it held no real sense of interest for me. But it seemed vaguely interesting as a story. Next up, we have Immortal Hulk, The Threshing Place number 1. I gave this a 4 out of 5. This is a story that casts Hulk in a heroic light. It starts with Banner on a bus and feels like something is wrong in a town that they're driving through. He finds out that there's a missing girl in a place that is spiking with gamma radiation. As Bruce investigates, he's caught by the little girl's dad, who's named Mr. Green, and the cops magically show up, knock him out, and take him to jail. While in jail, something is going on outside, and Bruce begs to be let out, and that the officer run. He doesn't, and then gets his head squeezed off by Hulk after a transformation. Hulk comes across another cop car with an injured cop, and admits that there's a government site underground, and Hulk steps on his head. It was one of the guys who attacked Banner earlier, so I can't say it's not completely undeserved. Hulk is crept up on by a monstrous figure who he recognizes as a little girl. He takes the Gamma from Rebecca and allows her to return to normal and takes her to her dad, telling them both to leave. Hulk then finds the underground site and kills every worker there and destroys it, especially when he sees how they'd been treating her. They gave her like a water bowl like a dog. Banner finds the Greens and helps them by telling them what to do and that she'll be better off than he ever was because she has her dad as a support person. A few things about this title that I love. Mike Del Mundo's art is amazing. The transformations, the smashing, the destruction, and just more look great and i'm used to that from the time he did on the main thor book i hope he does some more hulk in the future i thought the story was nice and and casting hulk as a hero on a rescue mission was a great touch not entirely always heroic but you know what i mean next up we have marvel's x number five i gave this a three and a half out of five as a penultimate issue i think this did well and of course it looks really good David finally gets to spend some time with the heroes that he loves and adores, and he even inspires them. The issue begins with the heroes sneaking David into the Baxter building, courtesy of the Invisible Woman. He says goodbye to Spidey, who's going back to his daughter, and then they start doing tests on David to see if they can cure all the humans of the mutation that has given everyone in the world powers. As the adults talk around David and about him without talking to him, Hank Pym steps in, becomes Giant Man, and tells everyone to essentially shut the fuck up and listen to the last human, and David asks that if he can't help others, could he get powers, which stops everyone dead in their tracks. The issue ends with the Baxter building coming under attack by a bunch of the mutated people in New York. This story has a brighter, more optimistic tone over the dark, heavy tone from earlier in the series even though there's a heaviness to the art i feel like the contrast between the art and the writing is balanced and necessary next up i have savage avengers number 12 i gave this a two and a half out of five this had a graphic open with electra and dr strange having floaty sex um which is a power that i desperately want they leave the sanctum with a person in a box and go to see the guardian of the crossroads where they drop daniel drum who's brother voodoo's brother out of the box to trade a life for a life 
As Stephen tries to negotiate, Electric kills Daniel, binding the spirits of Daniel and Brother Voodoo again. Doctor Strange and Electra go to find Conan so they can hunt Cool and Gath together. Conan is doing Crom's work by hunting these creatures and those who are enabling them. He kills them. Viciously. Except for the one that he tries to question, but there's magic keeping him from talking, and when he tries to talk, it lights him on fire. Elektra and Doctor Strange find Conan and reveal a crew of Avengers to help hunt Kulingath down. Admittedly, I don't like the art in this issue, specifically some of the faces. I just didn't like it. I will say, I love the formation of the team on the last page, but 12 issues in, shouldn't we have a set team? I love the violent tone of this book. It just feels like it could be doing more. Up next, Shang-Chi number one. I give this a three and a half out of five. This is the first of a quick five-issue miniseries, and I really took some good stuff away. There's a flashback up front following the Deadly Warriors and the introduction of Shang-Chi. In present times, there's a battle in the House of the Deadly Staff over being the supreme commander of the Five Weapons Society, and Sister Hammer emerges victorious and takes control even though the command is supposed to pass to the hand, not the hammer. As the warriors make way for America, we catch up with Shang-Chi working in a Chinese bakery, trying to live a quiet life working for Grandma Wong, the bakery's owner. He meets her niece who slips him her phone number, nice, and... As the niece and Grandma Wong take their leave, Shang-Chi notices a figure on a rooftop carrying a gun. He investigates to find out it is Leiko Wu, a former girlfriend of his. They talk and she tells him that he's being targeted and shortly after, they are attacked. Two of the would-be assassins turn on the others and identify themselves as Brother Saber and Sister Dagger and that they need help to kill Sister Hammer. The issue ends with Shang-Chi saying that he needs to save his sister while simultaneously Sister Hammer says that she needs to kill her brother. I was a little apprehensive coming into this title because sometimes characters like this with a specific cultural background can get a little culturally cringy, but it wasn't anywhere close to what I thought it would be. Also, the art really helps. I love the flashback art in the very beginning of the issue, and it's beautiful, and the rest of it has a really kinetic feel, with a style that I've sort of seen in manga before, but I think it really works well for this story. Finally here, we have X-Factor number 4. I gave this a 4 out of 5. This is the other co-Marvel book of the week. X of Swords, or Ten of Swords, depending on how you read that, continues here with Richter and Apocalypse quickly being ushered back to Krakoa to deal with their wounds. As the X-Men make their way back through the external gate, Saturnine reaches out psychically to Polaris and then closes the external gate, causing a lot of pain to Polaris. Neither Monet or Rachel are able to help unlock what was planted in Polaris's head. Richter's situation is grave, and Healer opts to let him die so that he can swiftly be resurrected and focus on healing Apocalypse. Apocalypse is not happy about this and attempts to kill Healer, but is stopped by Rachel, and his condition kind of worsens after that. Polaris asks about the protocols on casualties of war, and they have none until now. They resurrect Richter and Rockslide. It goes well for Richter, but Rockslide is a whole different story. Upon his rebirth, it shorts out Cerebro in multiple locations, the five lose their connection, and Charles falls to the ground unconscious. 
Additionally, Rock Slide falls to pieces and then reassembles, but is not actually Rock Slide? The five destroy the eggs, and Xavier wakes up demanding to know what's happened, and then he sees Rock Slide. After seeing what he sees with Rock Slide, realizing that it both is and is not Rock Slide, he verifies that Richter is who he's supposed to be. The five and the Quiet Council meet and come to the understanding that A, the Rock Slide they knew is gone forever, and B, dying on Otherworld is permanent. As the meeting gets heated, Polaris begins reciting words and then passes out, and when she wakes up, grabs Rockslide's remains and runs away. Magneto and Charles then go to visit and stand over Apocalypse, telling him about the mistakes that he's made and his absence won't be grieved as he seemingly dies on the table. Meanwhile, Lorna has been busy constructing a casting circle using Rockslide's remains, which seem to have runes that activate in the presence of specific swords. I love how this ropes in all the madness that goes alongside the X-Men and goes deep into its history with the swords. The art in this book is tight, which I love to see in big crossovers like this. I also love how both books so far in the crossover have been consequential, no more than this book so far. We've lost two mutants, one young and one very old, but he'll be back eventually. I'm super excited for next week. All right, as we start to wrap up the show, if you want to be on the show, hit me up on Twitter at SpiderMike29. Looking ahead to next week, there are some huge select titles, if my sources are indeed accurate. On the DC side, we have Batman number 100, DC's Dead Planet number 4, and Young Justice number 19. On the Marvel side... We have Amazing Spider-Man number 49, Marauders number 13, and Thor number 8. Our YouTube is about to blow up. Between the Avengers streams, Mike Stick Stack Books of the Week, and our weekly Wednesday shows, there's about to be a ton of can't-miss content from the Twisted Cave. Make sure you are subscribed. Hopefully, in the next week or two, you'll start to see some Twistcast episodes dropping. Get ready for those, baby! That is all the time we have for this week. Of course, make sure you subscribe to the Twisted Cape on your favorite podcast platform or listen directly at thetwistedcape.com or at the Twisted Cape, no spaces, on every social media platform. Facebook, the Gram, Twitter, and YouTube. Make sure you tune in weekly on Wednesday to the Twisted Cape's live show on Facebook or YouTube and live in them comments. We go over them at the end of each show. Finally, feel free to shoot us feedback on the show to the Twisted Cape at gmail.com. And make sure you use the subject line, MTS. Thanks for tuning in. So until next time, if you were a hooker, you'd know I'd be happy to pay. Stay safe, wear a goddamn mask, wash your hands, and stay twisted. Fix that.